0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. On first blush, we may look like a country whose citizens are disconnected and isolated, yet, Evan Osnos, in his new book, Wildlands, came to believe that the larger problem was the range of ways that Americans affected one another every day without realizing it. We are living in a time in the United States that might seem unrecognizable or even unimaginable to us 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. Did we miss the warning signs? Is this an ebb to a flow? Or have we become what firefighters call a wildland? a realm where a spark becomes a wildfire, leaving behind a permanently altered landscape. Evan Osnos's return to the United States in 2013 from China, where he served as Beijing bureau chief for The New Yorker, becomes the perfect perch from which to evaluate change. To determine if what John Gunther in his book Inside USA described as America's talent for the rational approach, reason, the meeting of minds, an honorable agreement after open argument had had been lost, maybe lost irrevocably? And more importantly, could it be recovered? Evan is well-equipped to answer these questions. He brings his years as a journalist here on Abroad and ultimately five years in China and is an author of two best-selling, award-winning books, Age of Ambition and Joe Biden. Yet the most important element that Evan brings to this conversation is his empathetic, detailed depiction of how these issues affect everyday citizens—the human toll. We meet Chip Scowron, Jamal Cole, Larry Hoover, Maurice Clark, Sidney Muller, Larry Barker, and Larry Kneisel, among others. It is through them that we develop a palpable understanding of how we got here and how they might help us find our way. Evan joins us to talk about his new book, Wildlands, The Making of America's Fury. Evan, welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: Oh, thanks, Roxanne. It is a thrill to be here with you talking about this book or any book, Frank. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Um, Well, I was excited because uh, there's a dozen topics that um, I'm tempted to cover in preparing for today's conversation, I thought, Well, we'll cover the obvious, your book, your fantastic book. Um, We could talk about China today. We could talk about Joe Manchin. We could talk about Biden's first eight months. We could talk about the gargantuan infrastructure bill. We could talk about the midterm elections. (laughs) Uh, And maybe we'll get to some of that. But let's start with the genesis uh, of your book. Uh, You get back from China. You uh, go to, you return or go to D.C.,
1: Right. And
0: what happened that made you see the seeds of this book?
1: Well, I will I will tell you frankly, it started in its earliest germination uh on the very first day actually that I came back to wow. work for the New Yorker here in this country, which is it was October 1st, 2013. And for all of us who have sort of repressed that particular chapter of American political dysfunction. That was a day that the government shut down for the first time in what, at that point was decades. We've since had other shutdowns since then. But I remember it was such a strange way, Roxanne, to come back to the United States to be writing about politics on a day in which we had shut ourselves down. And that the the self-inflicted quality was quite striking to me. I remember calling up the uh, White House to get the usual kind of press credentials that you get. And they said the press office is closed <laughs> because of the government shutdown. I thought, what a strange moment. And I kind of wandered over to Capitol Hill. You know, Part of this is like I have sort of some of the muscle memory. I'm a foreign correspondent by training, and so I'm kind of less... Comfortable in the normal Washington rhythms than I am in the rhythms of kind of walking around and encountering people and just talking to them. And so I went over to the Capitol and I happened to run into this nice couple who were visiting from Finland who were dragging their suitcases with them and staring up at the Capitol and trying to figure out why was the government shut down. And they asked me, I remember they said, is this normal? Is this part of your ordinary government process <laughs> you periodically shut down exactly and they said when will it be over and they, i realized every one of those questions was just a kind of something of a of an alarm to me that this something very strange was happening and uh that was the very very beginning where i realized okay i think i need to begin to understand some of the accumulated structural and cultural and temperamental reasons why our politics have become so uh ingrown to use a word uh,
0: So, Evan, in the book, you, um, I think, uh, in an uh, important and influential way, use the story of people, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about people. And by telling their stories, you um, cover the concentration of wealth uh, that has occurred over Uh, these last 10 to 20 years. The impact of the loss of local press, the financial crisis of uh, 2008 and how we handled that, fighting a 20-year war that was an abstraction in many ways to many people. The role of lobbyists, the role of misinformation. So what, what I thought we'd start with, because I thought there that this was a perfect example of how what we talked about at the very beginning, how one person related to the other. So let's start with the story of Reese Clark mm. and Chip Scowron. Yeah. Because their, their stories individually are interesting and I'd like you to share that, but you have both the, um, the victim and the perpetrator mm. of the impact of 2008 in those two people.
1: Yeah that's such a fascinating way to frame it. And I think of it in, in very much in these terms of these parallel lives who have these moments of intersection and Maurice Clark is a, is a remarkable person. I mean, I met this guy in an unusual way. I was standing on the street in Chicago reporting for the New Yorker about a shooting. I was writing a story about, particularly about violence on the South side. And I was standing at one of these shrines on the sidewalk that they that have been built after somebody's been shot. And a man walked up to me and he said, uh, "Who do you work for?" And I said, I, I, "I'm working for the New Yorker." And he said, "Is that the one with the cartoons?" And I said, "Yes." <laughs> and he said, "I used to read that in prison." And we got to talking. I said, "This is a man I I, I want to you know want to talk about. to." Yeah, and. Maurice Clark, I have to say, has just been extraordinarily generous with me over the last, now what's been five years of conversations because that day he said, let me explain to you, let me take you on a tour of the neighborhood and help you understand how this person whose name was Philip Dupree came to be shot on the sidewalk here. And what he was really telling me was the story of an entire system of political and economic isolation the degree to which this neighborhood, which is called Auburn Gresham on the south side, predominantly black, which ended up not incidentally being the first neighborhood in Chicago to record a death from COVID. And the reason mm-hmm. I mentioned that is in a sense, what he was introducing me to in a way we didn't even know the language for yet was a kind of comprehensive pre-existing condition, the kind mm-hmm. of thing that predisposed that area to that kind of risk. Maurice Clark, I should explain, went to prison uh, as a teenager for gang crimes. He was a a member of the Gangster Disciples and he was convicted of attempted murder and went off to prison for more than a decade and was gone for his 20s and he came out in his early 30s. And what's fascinating, what happened was that he and his family thought they had a very good stroke of luck which was that there was somebody coming door to door, literally door to door in 2004, saying I can get you a mortgage, a subprime mortgage. And they said, that's great, we'll use it to fix up the house. You know where this is going Roxanne, but they got this subprime mortgage, their monthly payments went from $900 a month, which they could afford to $1,800 a month overnight, which they could not afford. They ended up losing their house. And when they lost their house, that was that kernel of wealth, which might have become the very beginning of something that he would have been able to leave to his children, and his children's children. And you just you see in that moment how it is that a family becomes essentially hobbled. Uh, and, and
0: Evan, let, let me bring up two things that I think yeah. uh, you bring up in the book that sort of Fertilize even further this idea of pre-existing conditions. One of the facts that you talk about for Reese Clark that just broke my heart because mm-hmm. it was a what looks like a tiny thing that became that led to an alternate path, and that was Reese was a smart kid, yep, yep, and did well. And uh, they had sent him to a better school in another neighborhood. He had thrived there. And the high school that would have continued that quality of an education became unavailable to him because his parents did not have the money for the public bus to bring him there. He now is in another high school that represents all the problems we know that exist in urban education. And Reese Clark is now down the path that too many young men go yeah. down. But not having the money for the public bus was a cornerstone of the yes. direction that Reese Clark went in.
1: Oh, uh, I mean, you identified what I think of as kind of the subtext of this book, which is these moments of... Um, almost sort of tragic specificity in which there was a parting of the paths. His life could have gone one way. Had there been a program to allow ninth graders to get bus fare, instead of having a program that ended at eighth grade, he would have gone to Morgan Park High School, which was a school that scored well on all the tests. And And he was a person who was He wanted to learn. He was hungry for math, especially. He used to follow his mother through the grocery store and tally in his head the bill that he thought we would get from the register, and he would try to calculate the sales tax before the cashier could tell him. And yet he found himself now in this other high school, which was, in all the ways you described, inferior. And as he said, very sort of dryly to me, he said, and so began my life of crime. And I I have to say, the reason why I thought that moment is so important is that it's not rocket science in the end, ultimately how you can shape the contours of a life like Maurice Clark's. It's actually sort of painfully clear what is necessary. And that um, was a recurring theme along the way, was this idea that his, that the physical geography of his life defined so much of what he eventually mm-hmm. um, encountered.
0: So there are the Clarks. They've got a mortgage. And first of all, in, the, yeah. in when these subprime mortgages went out, if you were a person of color, the rate you got on that, yeah. um, the rate that the adjustable rate could go to, was greater than it was for others. And then whatever equity they had in both mortgage payments and down payments wiped out. That's right. Now let's talk about CHIP.
1: So the, the, the connection, it's, so Chip Scowron is a, is a person who, uh, his life began under very different circumstances. He was a doctor. He was uh, a successful Yale-trained, Harvard-trained surgeon. And he was losing interest in medicine. And somebody said, you should think about Wall Street because this was right around the turn of this century and Wall Street, particularly hedge funds, were beginning to hire doctors in order to help pick healthcare stocks. So he goes to Wall Street and within about three years, he had established himself, he'd moved from one fund to the next fund to the next fund, made about $30 million over the course of a few years. And then he drifted across this line, or actually to be precise as he as he describes it, you know, he, he, he sort of marched across this line between legal conduct and illegal conduct. And he started paying a researcher to give him information about a drug trial that was not yet public. And he ended up being charged with insider trading. And he went to prison pleaded guilty. And he got sentenced to 5 years, came out after 4, and you know came back to Greenwich. And in some ways what really struck me about these two parallel experiences was not only the disparity in the sentencing, which is sort of dramatic and quite and and worth lingering on for a second. But it's also the fact that the reason why I came to be thinking so much about the subprime mortgage and its connection between Chicago and Greenwich, is that some of the people who conceived and ultimately benefited from the mortgage boom are people who lived in my hometown of Greenwich. I mean, this is people like Dick Fold, for instance, the chairman and CEO of Lehman Brothers, uh, or Chuck Prince, who was the chairman and CEO of Citibank, which received the largest bailout in American history. And I, I, I was just, struck by the degree in which the degree to which they were they were joined on the on the the level of citizenship they share a political commons and yet their participation in our society between somebody like Maurice Clark and somebody like Dick Fold or Chuck Prince or ultimately Chip Scowron what what society allows of redemption and forgiveness and the opportunity to start a life again are on different planets. And I, I was just, I was sort of, I found myself returning to that idea. We, we don't afford the luxury of redemption to very many people and, in more And
0: countries. Evan, you, you know, I subscribe to the notion, and I'm curious about your take on it, that when we start to look at the underpinnings of what brought us to where we are today, which you do so eloquently in the book, you know, a, a fissure to me was the lack of prosecution. Like think of yeah. Mazillo, who was the head of Countrywide, right? right? He walked walked away with, I think hundreds of millions of dollars, Very That's deliberately right. knew what he was, you know, doing. He was, you know, he was the he was the sackler of the pharmaceutical industry in banking.
2: And mm-hmm. yet,
0: no bank lost their charter. No yeah. corporate executive, um, and I, and it always struck me that this was a sharp divide that that uh, depicted. Yeah. You know what? The big guys win. The power yeah. wins. We are invisible. We don't because they talked about they didn't have the money to bail out these people who had lost their mortgages, but they had. 250 million to bail out Goldman Sachs or hundreds of million to bail out Citibank or AIG or any of these. So how do you feel that that sequence or lack of, lack of events impacted the beginning of, of, if not the beginning, sort of an early beginning to people feeling like, you know what, I'm screwed.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think you hit on the key moment because in some ways, that was the beginning of the political age that we now inhabit, because you can can sort of draw the 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 chronology in various places. Some people would say 9-11. Actually, the financial crisis was a moment in which America announced its values on some level and said, that's a great way to put it. You know, there are people who shall be punishable and people who shall be not. And, And that was galling on a level, even though I don't think people fully articulated at the time. It took a few years, for instance, before the Occupy movement became visible. That was 2011 when Mm -hmm. Occupy began. And what really strikes me now, Roxanne, when I look back at some of the language people were using in the Occupy movement, there was a quote from somebody who said, it was a kind of quote of despair, where he said, you know, we tried the most iconic Progressive Democrat president, progressive Democratic president, we could imagine Barack Obama. We bet on him, and yet we still ended up in a situation in which we feel as if there was no justice after the financial crisis, and so we're going to have to think about alternatives. And I just often kind of return to that idea when he was talking about alternatives. Really, was the beginning of a much more restive period in our politics, and uh, and 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 I, I think that. You know oftentimes we sometimes think of the Occupy movement and the Tea Party as two hands of 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 a of a, mo- of a movement, a moment, really. Um, and they're completely different from one another in many respects, and yet they are also reflections of a growing turmoil that didn't yet have a name and didn't yet have any sort of of the identifiable figures who now um, give it form.
2: Mm. Let's be honest. Whether you're back in the office, still in your sweatpants working from home. Life's day-to-day responsibilities lack the fun we all want and deserve. If you're looking for a sign to use some of that hard-earned PTO and have some much-needed fun, look no further. FunJet Vacations is a one-stop shop for all your vacation needs and as experts in the industry, FunJet Vacations offers customers a fast, easy, and fun way to book their next vacation with exclusive package deals to all-inclusive resorts in Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. For a limited time, our listeners can use promo code FUNJET75 for $75 off your next FunJet vacation at Riu Hotels and Resorts. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly resort or an adults-only getaway, there's a Riu hotel and resort for you. To get started, just go to funjet or contact your travel advisor, and you'll be out of the office in no time. Offer is only valid at funjet.com when booked by October 15th for travel through December 21st. Restrictions apply.
0: So another uh, element that you talk about uh, that I'd like to spend at least a couple of minutes on, and I thought about this when you read the statistic uh, in the book that 20% of the protesters on January 6th were people from the military. right? And so you talk about Afghanistan, ironically, despite being the longest war in our history, most operated in a bubble. And um, share with us what impact, that had, and you, you know, you you zero in on the story of Sidney Mueller, mm. uh for that, and you talk about, and and again, to me, the theme that I kept seeing Evan come together here is the impact of being invisible, the yes. the impact of not mattering, the impact of not of losing the dignity that we each deserve, and the story that you tell of Sidney Muller and Gates's comment mm. uh, when he flew over to Afghanistan after a particularly brutal uh, battle occurred, share with yeah. us how you think that became a, another link in what you saw happening.
1: Well, the, the, the terrain for this is Clarksburg, West Virginia is where this begins. And Clarksburg is a small city in the Northern part of the state and my connection to it is that it was the first place I ever worked out of college. I was a a, a pretty lousy photographer at the local <laughs> paper in Clarksburg, West Virginia. And Clarksburg is a place that like a lot of rural towns and cities is very proud of its contribution to the American military over the years. And it's, you know, it's got, there are statues in town. There are kind of, you know, there's a thriving VFW and American Legion and so on. And after 9-11, A lot of young people went off to join the military, and one of them was a guy named Sidney Mueller. And he goes off and he goes to Iraq, he goes to Afghanistan, and the moment you identify is really kind of extraordinary. He was a Marine at a place in Afghanistan called Sangin, which was the bloodiest uh, the bloodiest battles for Marines of anywhere in the years after nine eleven. They had more casualties than any other encounter. And Bob Gates came over and said. Uh, you have made a great sacrifice to this country. And if there's anything that we can ever do for you, please, please speak up. And Sidney Mueller went home to Clarksburg and he was, at you know, when he first sort of touched down, he he had uh, ambitions. He was gonna go back to school. He was gonna do things. And he was falling apart quite rapidly, Roxanne. He was you know un, unraveling. He happened to arrive at the very moment that Clarksburg was in the grip of the opioid epidemic. It it sits on the highway between two of the big cities in West Virginia, Morgantown and Charleston. And so it is kind of a way station of the drug trade. And uh, he was also deeply traumatized and he was going to the VA and he was asking them for help. And if you go through the doctor's notes, I mean, one of the things that I find just really stark when you look at the way they were describing him was he's describing waking up in the middle of the night on the floor and not knowing how he got there. He's describing the fact that he says, I can no longer trust anyone. And his 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 ex-wife described to me the encounter of sort of seeing him falling apart. He couldn't remember their children's birthdays. And in a way, I want to reserve a little bit of the detail of what ended up happening to Sydney. Yeah, reader, please. Because I think the story yeah, as a reader is, it has, has greater power than I can do it justice here, other than to say, that it ended in a way that kind of forced me to think about what it is that we, what it is that we, we failed to do in acknowledging that the wars fought in our name are in fact a project for all of us. It was less than one half of 1% of Americans after all who fought in those wars State in State that America.
0: statistic again. I was stunned by that.
1: Extraordinary, right? Less than one half of 1% of Americans actually fought in those wars. and I, I. Took note of the fact when I came home from overseas, I started noticing that we have this genre of video, kind of a modern artifact. And you'll recognize what I'm describing: these videos, you know, they run at the end of the local news, or you see them online, and it's often a U.S. service member, a man or woman, coming home, and surprising their son or daughter at school or yeah, you know, on the playground or at home. And there's that, you know, there's always the moment of the embrace, and it and it's a kind of it's usually played as a kind of warm you know, something to end the local news broadcast on a sunny note. And I, you know, at first I looked at it and I thought, well, this is a a slightly, slightly strange piece of our, of our, of our national history at this moment. And then later, honestly, Roxanne, I had kids and I came to see it as something else, which was a moment of just absolutely devastating fear and anxiety on those children, on their, on the, and the burden that they were bearing for all of us. Of having their kids gone, having their parents gone that much. And that became, in a sense, almost, you know, those moments were describing the edge of a hole, a kind of a hole in our society that was steadily expanding uh, over the years.
0: You know, Evan, listening uh, to you talk about these two circumstances, and there's uh, one or two others I want to cover before we uh, come back to solutions in today is, yeah. you know, what, what you begin to understand is that we've lost our capacity to understand that we share in the responsibility mm. and we haven't shared in the cost. Yes. And that we've come up with gestures like, thank you for your service or- right
1: thoughts I'm, and prayers.
0: Thought, of, my, our, you know, our thoughts, I hate that term mm-hmm. in the way that it's often used. You're Boy. in our thoughts. Yeah, who who cares? Yeah. Uh, what's, what good is that doing me? I lost my house. I lost my leg or, yeah. Um, yeah. or something else. But the statement you made a few minutes ago really struck me. And that was when you said that the 2008 crisis, and in and in many ways how we treat our veterans hmm. depict our statement of values yeah and not what we want to think our country is and for most of us believe that that still the right values still there it's like underneath we got to figure out how it could you know sort of poke its mm-hmm. head above the ground you know it's what i said in the introduction is this an ebb and a flow Mm -hmm. or we you know going off uh the cliff and so i do i I appreciate you not telling the rest of sydney's Mm -hmm. story because you write it in a very cinematic and powerful uh way that i'd like our readers to uh, enjoy so let's go to another piece of what we're all becoming familiar with, and that is Mm -hmm. we no longer, we might not share values. Maybe that's always been true. But now we don't even share facts. Mm -hmm. We don't even have the same, you know, your fact is not my fact. Mm -hmm. And you have a, um, a statement in the book that says, throughout American history, the scrutiny and sustenance provided by local news has been intertwined with democracy, yeah, and has a powerful effect on social cohesion. And as you said, you started your career as a journalist at the Exponent Telegram. Is that how it's That's pronounced?
1: Right. Exponent, yeah, exactly the, the Exponent. Telegram.
0: Um, so let's talk about the role of local news. You d- you do share with us that between 2000 and 2012 that print advertising across American newspapers fell a catastrophic 71 percent. Mm-hmm. So what, what's what been the impact of now, now we have social media, we don't have your local newspaper?
1: It's been totally devastating. And it's, I have to tell you, it's one of these things that's happened kind of a little bit Beyond the radar screen, there was a fascinating poll that was done where people were asked just a couple of years ago, "How do you think local news is doing in this country?" And people said, "Seems to be probably doing okay." And the real answer is actually, there's been, as one person memorably put it, a kind of mass die-off. There's been something like 2,000 newspapers that have gone away over the last 15 years. And why does this matter? It's it's, it's not just about covering the local. Uh, the local school board or, you know, running the sports scores from the baseball game. A newspaper is a thing beyond itself. And I Arthur Miller had a, a memorable description. He called it a nation talking to itself. Mm. And there is something powerful on the local level about the way that a newspaper is, in effect, a, a forum for a place to, to come together as a political community. And I use that word Um, Carefully, because I think community is a sort of wildly overused and sort of cheapened term. It's actually a very powerful thing. And just to give you a couple of examples of what happens, they've studied this now. When a local newspaper goes away, people are less likely to vote, they're less likely to run for office. The local government itself is more likely to raise its own salary and less disciplined about how it spends money. You can actually measure over the course of the next three years, the way in which they're more likely to um, To to uh, to dip into the local treasury. And the reason why I mention all this is That I think one of the things that has happened along with the decline of local news is that we've sort of uploaded our political lives to the cloud, meaning to the national political conversation. And there's a fascinating body of data that shows that over the last half century, we've become less able to name the governors of our own states, yet we're also still able to name the vice president at the same level. So we are quite literally sort of receding into the, Mm. what I would kind of describe as the somewhat comforting, but false community of of a national political identity. And, And it matters, I think, because when you have a thriving local political scene, and that can be defined by turnout, it can be defined by letters to the editor in the paper, you name it, but it helps us see one another as something more three-dimensional than just whether we're a, a Biden guy or a Trump guy.
0: We're also closer to, to knowing that it's a fact or not. I mean,
1: yeah. uh, what's yeah.
0: scary to me is even people that are not, n- not, trying to challenge everything are beginning to think that everything's biased. I mean, well-read, open-minded, thoughtful people, it's creeping into our brains. You know, and this is what propaganda is. Propaganda is losing faith in anything being reliable so an authoritarian government or person can say, you know what, guys, I'm the only one, really, that you can trust, right? I mean, you're saying that. Everybody else is unreliable.
1: Yeah, Um, it's it's a huge, and it's an, you know, at one point I stashed this quote aside when I lived in China by Hannah Arendt, who said that there is a particular, she called it a peculiar form of cynicism that takes hold in a society in which people think they're being deceived. She said that over time, they stop believing the truth of any- Anything. And I remember, you know, it made sense to me in China. I sort of understood, okay, this is an authoritarian system in which people are aware every moment of the day that the propaganda is talking to them. But in America, we were contending with a different a sort of cousin of that problem, which is that I think we have, you know, because of the we're all sort of aware of the fact that even though we're dependent on these technologies like Facebook and Twitter and so on, we're also deeply aware that they are tools of manipulation and those kind of it creeps into our our sense of just a sense of solidity that we're standing on Mm -hmm. solid empirical ground. And that's part of the reason why we've ended up in this sort of epistemological crisis. Uh,
0: so I, I, I want to come back to the local news, but I want to wrap up this part of the conversation with a quote from that fabulous book called Wildlands. <laughs> <laughs> and and what, you, what you say is five years after the Trump era began, a physical assault on U.S. democracy felt both shocking and inevitable a culmination of everything I'd come to understand about America's political crisis since I had come to DC in 2013. And it reminds me, and I'm sure I'm bastardizing this quote, one of my favorite quotes um, of recent political times was from Philip Ross' plot against America. And there, without going into the plot, a series of horrible things started happening. And the comment by a character is, it was the kind of event that the present considered unlikely and the future considered inevitable. Yeah. And I feel like we're on the precipice of, are we where we are because it was inevitable from the march of the last 20 or 30 years, maybe beginning with the seventies and Reagan error doctrines. So do you come through this analysis that you do feeling that we are on our way to the abyss? Do you do you see a I don't like the word hope because it feels sure. empty. But yep. do you see steps by which we could reemerge?
1: Yes. Uh, okay. Oh good. I, like- Let me hear it. And I will tell you, you know, and I love your point about not using the word hope. I think we should use the word work. Yeah. Because that's actually <laughs> what's required of us to fix it. And there's a, you know, there's a, there is a wonderful pattern of history that can encourage me in moments like this. And I do find it very persuasive, which is that, you know, the one of the closest moments of analogy from the last century was the Gilded Age, in which you had high rates of polarization, high rates of income inequality, huge amounts of political discord, political violence even. And what did it give way to? It actually gave way to the progressive era, which gave us public high schools, the advent of the federal income tax, a sort of much greater awareness of the protections of vulnerable people. And and the thing, the lesson that I take from that, and I I should say that, you know, I've been kind of counseled on this over the last year or so uh, in interviews with Robert Putnam, who's written about that moment of transition. But part of what's happened was that you have to push the pendulum. It does not happen on its own. And he's quite hostile to the analogy of a pendulum because he says that implies almost a kind of cosmic or meteorological redemption. And it's not exactly what happens. Yeah, People have to become aware of the problems. And I think you pointed out earlier this key moment, the financial crisis almost was on some level perhaps you know the pendulum reaching its apex and then beginning to swing because that's the point. Or maybe it was the Trump years. You can define it in different ways, but that was the point in which people began to say, "This is unsustainable. This is untenable." And I've been, I've been really encouraged by what some of the things that I see on the ground in the places I've written about of people actually saying, "No, no, I'm not content to allow history to run its course. I'm intervening."
0: Yeah, and and Evan. You know, I've I've uh, thought about that from reading the book because we can't be in the bleachers. Right. Everybody matters. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I was I was talking to James Foreman uh, Jr. Yeah. Uh, yeah. who lives in I live in New Haven. He lives in right. New Haven, and wrote uh, "Locking Up Our Own," which I think is yeah. a brilliant book. And he's an extraordinary guy.
1: Yeah, I relied and, on it. In fact, for my book, it's like it's important. It's it's essential.
0: Yeah, he, he's he's just fabulous. And so when I when George Floyd first happened, and he and I uh, sat down and had a conversation, I said, "Okay, you know, I'm a white woman in New Haven who's 72 years old. What the hell can I do?" Right. And he said, "You know, you read about a police uh, problem. Show up at the hearing." Yeah find out what's going on there and that I think that that moving away from thinking that we're helpless yes and that you know you put one foot in front of the other and participate is a hope I hope uh is a message that people take away from your book this is not happening over there and we're over here Um, yeah
1: you're absolutely right. Look, I I have to say, agency—the idea that we are not only, or is it possible to do something, but it's actually often easier to do something than you might expect. And I think you saw some of that play out in 2020 when you saw the scale of the protest, particularly of young people, uh, joining the uh, joining the protests against racial injustice. You know, a lot of times it was it was a diverse crowd who was doing it. And if you looked at voter turnout in 2020, it was some of the highest levels of voter. Participation than we've seen in a hundred years, and I, I'm quite struck, and I find myself returning to one concept that Brian Stevenson has used in his description of how a person can get involved, which is to, as he says, get proximate,
2: mm-hmm. which is
1: such an elegant way. That's a of good putting, word. You know, get yourself there, and he tells his own story of being a Harvard Law School student who kind of was interested in the abstract in civil rights, but it wasn't until he went and worked. In a legal aid clinic in which he really was working on, on cases involving death row, that it finally he was proximate enough. And he said, I get it. And I think there's something look, honestly, in my own work, part of the the embedded in this book is uh the the this desire to want to be to get proximate. I wanted mm-hmm. to get up close to people's lived experience of all different types: rich, poor, black, white, get into people's lives and at one point, I think I describe it as a book about public life told through private experience, because that's the only way that I was gonna be able to try to reconcile the combination of these two ways of being American.
0: So it, taking uh, taking up your term of being proximate, one of the saddest passages in the book Uh, to me, was, you know, one of the things that we haven't talked about is the impact of lobbyists and the lack of campaign finance uh, reform. And I'm not sure that we'll get to it, but so Larry, is it Kniesel?
1: Yeah, Kniesel. Larry Larry
0: Kniesel testifies or speaks at a town hall meeting. He's That's done right. his research, he's done his homework. He's not a banshee. You know, he right. it's you know, he reminds me of that quote from the nineteenth century that we as Americans love live conformists and dead nonconformists. We don't <laughs> like people raising their hand in the crowd right. and making a fuss. We get uncomfortable. That's right. And he made an eloquent, exquisite, documented statement. Yeah. And there was goddamn silence,
1: silence, silence, silence,
0: silence. And it, it, it brought up the, I I don't remember whether I got this from the book or somewhere else. I didn't make it up, but it was, it manifested the privilege not to listen, right? The -hmm. privilege not to listen because you held the power.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in and and as you captured, I think the fact that you zeroed in on that moment says a lot about what are the one of the themes that that comes to the surface in the book, which is about his rage, his fury, as I would call yeah. it, simply having his statement unrecognized. And as he said, you know, I actually even wanted them to push back. I wanted them to challenge anything, them. Wanted them- anything. Anything. Instead, it just kind of happened, and and for me, I f- I found that to be a kind of a searing um, a searing moment, and I, I I'm glad you you noticed that one actually. So
0: I'm going to fast forward in our last ten minutes because it's a little bit irresistible to have someone with your perch. Um, so you wrote a book about Biden, right? Uh, And so were you surprised about his handling uh, of the Afghanistan exit or surprised about his 200 day, first 200? I don't know if it's 200, but let's make believe it is.
1: Sure. Uh, I I would tell you, I, I was not remotely surprised that he was determined to get out of Afghanistan in quite the single minded way that he was. And he had
0: been opposed to the surge under Obama.
1: Exactly, right. for 12 years. And, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves that he is the first U.S. president to have a child in combat since the Carter administration, and before that, Eisenhower. And so for him, Bo Biden's experience looms very, very large in his mind. The surprise for me, though, honestly, Roxanne, was how, let's be honest, how chaotic it was, how... Um, how poorly executed it was. And he won't say it quite that way because he's determined to get through it. And that's, that's what it means to try to be president of the United States and, and to try to get on to the next thing. But the reality was that he was briefed on it. He was briefed fully on the implications, the conceivable downside risks, all of the ways this could go wrong. He didn't not listen to it. I mean, I've had I've gotten enough of an understanding from my interviews about the texture of those encounters to know that he was, it wasn't like he said, I don't want to hear it, but he listened. And then at the end, he was totally unpersuaded and he forged ahead. And mm. the result was painful and costly for the United States and obviously for the Afghans uh, involved. But I think his, deter- his level of focus on getting out of there Reflected his his belief that Americans in places like Clarksburg, West Virginia, were not actually getting enough of a voice at the table, and that the the toll from these wars, two decades of wars fought by a tiny minority of Americans, was sort of an unrecognized um, legacy.
0: And, and Evan, we're recording this on the on the day uh, that the UN is in session, and Biden uh, spoke before the UN today. How effective do you think his comments were in kind of healing this fissure of not working with the allies on the exit or not uh, giving France a heads up that they were going to take away their billions of dollars of submarine uh, contracts with Australia? Do you think he tiptoed back or is it it's going to take more than a speech at the U.N.?
1: That's exactly it. I think there's there's a there's a fair amount of bruising there and it's different kinds in different places. I mean, in the UK, somebody said to me this week, you know, we went from you went from America first to America alone, and that's how they're feeling about it. You know, the the issue with France is more specific to the dynamic between the US and France and ultimately its place in this larger question. All of this really, as you know, is about China. And the, the, you know, the, the decision to strike this deal with Australia is an announcement on the part of the United States that it is preparing to recommit itself to being a Pacific power. And in the end, nobody in the White House will put it quite this way, but their view would be, we know France is going to be unhappy about it. But in the end, where's France going to go? They're not going to abandon their security alliance with the United States. They're not going to choose China. And so we have to do this thing that we think is necessary to re- to, to to reset the balance in the Pacific.
0: Uh, so speaking of China, Evan, one of the things I was struck by reading the book, so you were out of the country from 2005 to 2013, eight years. Yeah,
1: yeah. You've now Actually, been out-, I was out of the country from 2002 to 2013, oh. but I was the New Yorker. I was in China from 2005 to 13. Yeah.
0: And you're now out of China eight years.
1: Yeah, um, that's right.
0: And I'm curious. We've talked about how different the U.S. looked to you when you came back in eight years. These eight years have been quite um, remarkable in the in the tilt that they've taken. How do you That's think? If right. you went back to China, yeah. Uh, uh, how do you think you'd view what changes they've gone through? Do you do you see chinks in their armor? Yeah. from the forward economic march that they've enjoyed.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been going, since moving back in 2013, I've generally gone to China a couple of times a year. And, and the pandemic has been the first time I realized, the first time I've been out of China more than a year in you know two decades. And so, but this period of the last eight years since moving back has coincided really with Xi Jinping's rise to power. And I wrote a profile of him in the New Yorker. And one of the things that comes clear is that history had already begun even before Xi Jinping came to power. It really started after the Olympics and after the financial crisis. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, which mm-hmm. is, wasn't just a signal to Americans about uh, a kind of frailty that we hadn't recognized. The Chinese interpreted the financial crisis as a sign that they had to make a big change in their assumptions. They said, all right, this Western financial model is not reliable. And moreover, we don't wanna feel as if we are vulnerable to the intervention and disruption from the West. So we're gonna go our own way. And that became that. then feeds into the domestic Chinese political scene and these things, as, as, as they do in any system, feed on one another. And all of a sudden you get this much more um, suspicious, hostile, in some ways, um, Uh, kind of going its own way, China. And economically speaking, they are are very aware of the fact that they're racing the clock because they had a period of built-in growth because of demographics, because of the fact that they'd missed out on so much of the industrial revolution, essentially they were making up for lost time. Now the race is to avoid getting stuck in the middle income trap and they are a rapidly growing population. I know that sounds like a kind of think tank panel kind of observation mm-hmm. about demographics, except that it's absolutely a huge determining factor. And when you try to understand, and you know, I spend part of my time on China these days, when you try to understand why is Xi Jinping racing the clock in this way, it's because he looks at it and the economic ingredients are no mystery that at a certain point, he will have more retirees than he has members of the workforce. And uh, his view is he's got to forge ahead and do things fast. But they have made a lot of enemies around the world. I'd say the biggest thing that surprises me perhaps, Roxanne, over the last eight years in China, is that the internet, when I moved back from China, was acting as a counterweight to the Communist Party. It was challenging the party. It was sort of pinpricks all over the place. It was pointing out hypocrisies and corruptions of various kinds. And they ended up breaking the back of the internet and Mm -hmm. making it essentially a tool that serves the party. And that was a surprise to me.
0: Well, you know, the part that was a surprise or is a surprise to me and disheartening is the degree to which some of our biggest technology companies are succumbing to China's uh, conditions because of their profits. Now, I'm I'm a business person. My background's in finance. Right. So it's not like I think I I, I want to see a socialist country uh, sure. here. But you can you, you can be disturbed by these companies stating their values because if Apple and Google and Facebook wouldn't succumb, there'd be another price that I, I would think. I mean, really, yeah. I don't even know what I'm talking about, but
1: yeah, I'm going to say difference. that anyway. <laughs> no, but you've identified a key moment, which was that there was a period when these Western technology companies like Google, like Facebook, were saying, "We, if we can get into China, we'll do more or less whatever we have to do to get there. And in a curious way, China ended up saying, actually, I mean, there, there, there's kind of amazing moment. Like Mark Zuckerberg at one point actually asked Xi Jinping to name his his baby, give give his child a Chinese name. And it was sort of, a, you I know, evolved. in the, China, in the China <laughs> analysis world where I kind of operate sometimes, Oi. we all thought, Oh man. And then, and then at a certain point, Xi Jinping said, you know what, we don't want Facebook in here anyway, because we think it's politically disruptive and we can't control it enough. And so at that point you began to see Facebook say, okay, we're no longer going to try to get into China. But, uh, you know there but hollywood is still very much um essentially responding to and catering to china's official requests and that is not a recipe for um for bringing honor upon them or for for you know living up to our values
0: so i want to close uh, evan with this question and i i close with this at the risk of ending on a downbeat but i'm gonna i'm gonna have faith in you that <laughs> all right you, you won't despite yeah. the fact that i'm leading the witness you won't go there um <laughs> so january 6th yeah i think um for all of us and particularly now with bob woodward's book and some of the things that, you know that pence is calling quail that we now have yeah. quail to thank um yeah for pence not um succumbing to uh, Trump's demands but I think most of us came away from that saying holy cow yes our democracy which we were sure could get take a punch but is it more frail um, than we think So is it was that event a wake-up call? Uh, that we're hearing, Um, are we learning from it? What's the impact of Congress in a bipartisan way being unwilling to analyze it, suggest about what we've learned from the 2020 election and that January 6th event?
1: I think what January 6th gave us was a sudden awareness of tragic imagination, it forced us suddenly to actually consider the possibility that the most treasured thing we have as a country is actually in doubt and could be lost. This idea of a peaceful transfer of power, this thing that we have just assumed in the most elemental way is ours is actually um, something we could lose. And I think no matter where you are on the political spectrum, with the with the exception of what I'll call bitter enders, the people who continue to this day to you know, show up in washington d c to to sort of venerate that occasion, really a lot of Americans who had who might have thought, you know, I can cast a ballot for Donald Trump because in the end the institutions are sound, the culture of the democratic traditions are strong and they'll be able to buffer whatever damage he can do. There was a moment of a sobering awareness, I think. And that we were, I I use the term tragic imagination because I think part of what got us into trouble over the last decade or two, is the unwillingness to imagine that actually the bad thing can happen. Well, what would really happen if I sell subprime mortgages on this scale? I mean, honestly, what really? would really? And what would really happen if I, I don't know, misstate the intelligence about going into Iraq? Honestly, I mean, it's probably for the best. So this idea that we would actually suddenly be aware of the consequences of our political decision-making is, is an enormously important landmark and, I come away with it encouraged by the fact that even though the Congress at this point is incapable of summoning itself up to the full height to actually investigate January 6th, that you do see the antibodies in our system, like the Bob Woodwards, like the sheer power of relentless journalists who are going to go after that and try to excavate it themselves. That is its own form of self-correction. And in the end, I think that's the thing, Roxanne, that I come away with most distinctly from having lived overseas, particularly in these authoritarian systems in Egypt and China and Iraq and so on, and then being here in the United States, is that we have this capacity for self-correction, and it's messy, and it's slow, and we do it out loud, and it can be kind of somewhat terrifying, but we have that power to push the pendulum ourselves, and the fact that we're having this conversation, I think, is a demonstration of that.
0: All right. You know what? I'm not going to ask any other question at the Uh. risk, at the slightest (laughs) risk of putting any little dent in that eloquent, perfect way. Um, We've been talking with uh, Evan Osnos, the author of Wildland, The Making of America's Fury. And, um, you you know, we didn't get to a lot uh, I don't know if you can see all my turn down pages. Uh, <laughs> there are, you know, chapters uh, that elaborate on some of what we covered, characters uh, that you've met that we haven't gotten to talk about, topics. So, I really want to thank you uh, for your time, Evan. I think that this is an important a uh, document uh, for us to familiarize ourselves with and you know, I'm going to say, pay attention, that we should be paying attention.
1: Thank you so much. It's a thrill to be able to talk to you about it. And I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman, You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.